In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Happy New Year and welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host, executive producer and New Year's resolver, Mike Graham. I got a big New Year's hat on. I got some champagne. It's spraying all over the walls and I'm just... Uh, my New Year's resolution is to get better at reacting to your <laughs> welcoming me to the show. <laughs> well, I got to say, Mike, that New Year's whistle was right on cue. So well done there. Well, thank you. you I got the I got the voice stuff down. It's something that uh, I've been working on, you know, for a long time. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of things that we're working on for a long time, it is the New Year. A lot of people have New Year's resolutions, and that sort of ties into why we picked today's topic. That's right. We're doing uh, we're doing to the bone today. That's right. So a lot of times the new year, people are trying to lose weight or exercise more and do all these things that they want to be healthier. But we also know that these things are also a lot of times tied to unhealthy behaviors and changes. So, you know, I know this topic is of personal importance to you. So I thought while we're up top, maybe you could share some of your own experience and why this topic was of particular relevance. Yeah. And just to kind of give a disclaimer is, you know, I definitely asked to talk about this today. And uh, so that's why we're kind of given some time here. Um, and this is going to be tough. This is going to be really tough to talk about. Uh, so if you just bear with me on this one. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, we, we've talked before obviously, but yeah, I think it's, as we talked about good for people to, to kind of hear that this is not just something that affects the sort of stereotypical person. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So everyone that listens to the show knows that I am diagnosed bipolar, you know, and I have major depressive disorder, whatever disorder, disorder, disorder. You hear it a lot. You know, I came out on this show and I, I, I'd never really said any of those things like publicly. I definitely had told my friends in the past, like closer friends, Maybe even like <laughs> friends at work, stuff like that. People that know me, I probably have told, but definitely not like online or socially, like in a public forum. And I, I did that here with Pop Psych. I thought it was really important. But as far as telling people that I was like bipolar and everything else, like that was really, that was relatively easy. easy. Is that, I mean, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it was, it was tough. A little, and there was some unease with it, but relatively easy. But there's there's something else that I also deal with, and um, Ryan, I had asked you to just kind of confirm this with me, or or at least talk a little bit about this, because when you're someone who deals with different mental illness or health mental health issues, it's gets really it feels like when you're telling people about stuff that you deal with. That at some point they're going to be like, oh, you can't, you can't have everything under the sun. You know what I mean? 
yeah, almost like a disbelief that how could so many things be going on for one person? Right. And so eating disorders, um, we're going to be talking about To the Bone today, uh, the movie, and that involves anorexia, nervosa. And uh, so that's an eating disorder, and, and that's going to be kind of the topic today. And so, I, you know, I have an eating disorder myself, and I just was going to ask you about uh, what you've seen in your practice and I've talked to my psychologists and my psychiatrists and things like this and asked their opinions. And so I know what opinions are based on this, but I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about opinions on um, eating disorders uh, being paired with uh, mood disorders as, if, as far as what you've seen. Yeah. And, and so we've talked about... Which bipolar is a mood disorder, by the way. Absolutely. So we've talked about on the show the sort of negative beliefs that people can form about themselves in the context of like doing um, EMDR treatment and things like that. So, you know, if we think about things like bipolar, depression, anxiety, you know, a lot of these things often carry with them the same sort of negative beliefs about self and, and certainly a certain, a fair amount of, you know, emotional chaos and conflict that comes with that. So when these factors are in place, it unfortunately is common for people to seek control, to seek consistency in things that they feel they can control. For example, uh, their eating behaviors, their exercise behaviors. And, and when those things happen, when someone is suffering from depression, anxiety, bipolar, you know, these, this focus, this attempt to control can turn to an obsessive uh, or, or even dangerous level. So it's absolutely true that when people are, are struggling with their, whether we think about their self-worth or how they, how they feel about themselves, that can absolutely sort of morph into whether we think of it as body dysmorphic issues in the sense that they are seeing themselves through a lens that may not be accurate or just attempts to control things when other parts of their lives are out of control. So that's that's not me giving you any particular advice, but just sort of acknowledging that, yeah, that this is a real thing that happens for people. And and it's, you know, I, something that for me, I hope that, you know, whether it be men, women, whomever, kids, that if this is something that's ex that they're experiencing is to not downplay it because it's a it is a, a real and a serious symptom that needs attention. And the, the reason I just wanted you to to just kind of address that real quick was because. Like I said, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to, so, okay, so, like I said, it's, I've told, it was relatively easy to talk about, like, the bipolar stuff and the, the you know, my major depressive stuff, you know, I mean, those are intense things that my brain deals with, uh, but this is the, and bar none, most embarrassing and most shameful thing that I deal with uh, by leaps and bounds. And so I've been um, absolutely 100% that I wanted to talk about this today, uh, but also at the same time incredibly nervous about it, uh, to the point where I even kind of pushed this episode off a little bit. Like, I kind of bailed on it a couple nights, um, which I, you know, I mean, I've done that before, but <laughs> I definitely was kind of pushing this one off yeah, a little bit. That's all right. But, um... I'm glad we're doing it tonight. Uh, it's, anyway, so I have, I have, a, I'm treated for binge eating disorder. And 
it just feels embarrassing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, I do take I take two medications uh, pres- prescribed by a uh, psychiatrist for binge eating disorder. I'm on uh, take Vyvanse and uh, Topamax. Both of those are supposed to help with appetite uh, or at least appetite control. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about it, the reason I wanted to come out and say it was, well, there's a there's a thousand reasons. Um, I guess the major ones are. Uh, complete transparency. There's no reason to do this show from my end of it if I'm not going to be transparent about my stuff. Uh, I want anyone listening to us to relate to me as much as they can. Uh, if I expect anyone to learn anything on this show, they, ha- they have to, uh, from my side of it, they have to relate to me. Um, so if I want to teach anyone, then they have to, and I have to be transparent. Uh, the, the others being, it's, it's, as far as being a, a man and having problems with food, uh, well, first I do want to say like binge eating disorder, I think is, is probably something I think a lot of people deal with that they don't, that they don't like seek help with or, or are willing to accept that they have a problem with. And I think a lot of males included. Um, absolutely men and women alike both have eating disorders I'm just speaking for the males right now and I'm not saying that anyone's better or worse or anything but I do see, I do tend to think that uh, men tend to just not say a word about it more often so I want to be a man that, that comes out and says hey I have an eating disorder and so if there's another man listening to this, they can, you don't have to say it. You don't have to tell someone, but you know, you can, you know that it can be real and another guy can have it and, or deal with it, I guess. And you can, you know, there's someone you can talk to, or there's, there's ways to deal with it. Um, and, and I deal with it, but you know, as far as, you know, and someone wrote on our Facebook chat, um, or we have our pop site group. And um, they asked, they wanted us to specifically talk about binge eating disorder on this episode. And I know that the movie that we're talking about today is based around mostly anorexia. So I did want to, I did not want to forget about binge eating as far as the table of, of, of eating disorders, right? Yep. And um, anyway, so I just wanted to uh, kind of go over binge eating disorder it, uh, you know, as being far as not just overeating, you know, it's just like an uncontrollable sort of situation. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to describe, and we can kind of go into that if if we want to at the end with maybe some listener questions because I know some people ask some real specific questions about it. But anyway, um, I mean, that's basically it. I just wanted to come out and say, hey, you know, I have this issue. I'm a I'm a man dealing with this issue. I'm a man dealing this with with this issue who also goes to a therapist and talks to my therapist about coping with this issue, who also goes to a psychiatrist and um, talks about medication that can help me uh, deal with this while I'm learning how to cope with this issue. It's a real issue. It's a real uh, mental thing that, like Ryan said, can start from when you're a little kid. And and I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, if you're... It's something that you deal with, you know, you're just, you're just not alone. So yeah, I just wanted, (laughs) I just wanted to say that stuff today. So 
That's about it. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you sharing, Mike, and I know there will be people out there who appreciate it the same way that I do. So I want to say thank you. Yeah, th- thank you. And I hope, you know, I, I hope that came across the right way. I didn't want to, it's like, I did, I'm not just coming out to, I talk about, hey, look at me and all these things. I really want someone to, you know, feel like that they just have something to grab onto, I guess. Yeah, me too. And and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this movie is because, you know, there is sort of a stereotypical view of disordered eating behavior, but it's also something that, you know, a lot of other people or really anybody, it doesn't discriminate, can be affected by. So thank you for sharing your experiences with this. And and with that, you know, it's not going to be easy, but let's get into to the bone. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's go. I just don't see the point. In what? There is no point. Or at least big picture, we don't get to know what it is. Why we live, why Megan lost the baby, why that girl killed herself. You're not reassuring me, doctor. I can't reassure you. This idea you have that there's a way to be safe It's childish and cowardly. It stops you from experiencing anything, including anything good. You don't think I feel bad enough already? I know I'm messed up. But you're supposed to teach me how not to be. You know how. Stop waiting for life to be easy. Stop hoping for somebody to save you. You don't need another person lying to you. Things don't all add up. But you are resilient. Face some hard facts and you could have an incredible life. That's your pearl of wisdom? Grow a pair? That's a more concise way of putting it. Yeah. Today we are doing To the Bone, a 2017 Netflix film starring Lily Collins as Ellen Keanu Reeves as Dr. Beckham, and Alex Sharp as Luke. Ellen is a 20-year-old woman suffering with anorexia. After a stint at a few different inpatient recovery programs, Ellen is running out of options due to her continuing loss of weight and issues with following through with the recovery guidelines. Her family, concerned she will actually die by starvation, convinces her to try again with a more unconventional inpatient program directed by Dr. Beckham. She finds herself in a somewhat unsupervised group situation and still struggles to find a way to overcome her fears. She does, however, form a connection with her housemates, including a short romance with the only male patient, Luke. Eventually, Ellen leaves the program and ends up at rock bottom and accepts she will die from her illness. When she doesn't, she appears to have a fresh outlook and returns to her treatment voluntarily. Yeah, so that's it was a really intense movie, Mike. Yeah, it really was. Uh so I, I did try to just keep that short and to the point. I thought it was I mean, I, I really liked it. I didn't want to, you know, normally I go really detailed on that stuff, but I, I wanted to kind of gloss over it and just give the major points because I think it's worth a watch for anyone that deals with this stuff. Yeah, it was very intense. 
And and not only that, but I think it's worth a watch for for anyone. And and so it's th- very similarly to Thirteen Reasons Why, another Netflix special. It's a great opportunity for parents to to have these sort of conversations with their teens. You know, even if anorexia eating disorders to a large degree may not be a, a super common issue, I think just being able to talk about feelings about food, feelings about eating, feelings about body image is such a healthy and important discussion especially in today's society that that and if a movie like this can help start those conversations all the better. So let's let's get into it. I I was going to say normally in the beginning of our conversations I jump in and say, "Hey Ryan, you know, what is the thing we're talking about today?" but in to the bone it's it's very obvious we're talking about anorexia, we're talking about eating disorders. I think the general population has an incredibly good idea what an eating disorder is on the surface. So what I was wondering out of the cage is if if you could kind of go into what a diagnosis looks like for an eating disorder. Um, it, you know, in To the Bone, we see Ellen it described as an addiction. We see her uh, hate other people that like food or calls other celebrities fat, this kind of thing. There's a lot that goes into it. So I was wondering, like, what's going through people's heads that have eating disorders, what are the different eating disorders? Because I know there's more than one. So I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a general outlook on that stuff. For sure. So with anorexia, we're looking at a couple of specific symptoms. So the, the most common being sort of the restriction of food intake, which either leads to weight loss or failure to gain weight, which results in a significantly low body weight, you know, the sort of extreme pictures that you see that Ellen sort of gets to these really extreme sort of body situations in the course of the movie, and specifically that low body weight for that person's age, sex, and height. So disproportionate to, to where they should be, you know, according to sort of doc, typical doctor recommendations. But there's also this very typical fear of becoming fat or fear of gaining weight. And we see this portrayed several times during the movie where Ellen makes comments about, you know, what will happen if she eats the, um, what's the chocolate bar that she wants? Yeah. The goo goo bar. So, you know, she thinks about what's going to happen if I have this one goo goo bar, what's going to happen if I eat this one, you know, meal that they were out, the special meal with uh, Luke. And there's all this sort of, you know, really extreme distorted perception about what's going to happen if they have one normal meal. So, and, and that's, that touches on the last major symptom, which is this distorted view of themselves and their condition. The one thing that Ellen does throughout the movie is she puts her fingers around her arm to sort of measure the size of her arm. And that's, you know, a very sort of distorted view of where she is or where she should be. Right. She thinks if she keeps, like, her arm stays within the amount where she can still grasp her whole hand around it, that she's... Within the range that she thinks she's supposed to be at. Right. And then if somehow she couldn't, then then that means she's overweight. When in reality, she's probably definitely underweight and, and is having this sort of, you know, another term you'll hear tossed around is body dysmorphic perception, which is that, you know, even though they are underweight, even unhealthily underweight, they still see themselves as overweight or see themselves as fat. This movie's portraying anorexia, which, like you just said, is generally someone who's restricting food, has a fear of gaining weight, and has a general misconception of what their own body image is. So just to take us sort of to the beginning of Ellen's experience, 
we kind of open in the movie. Ellen is struggling. Uh, she's at a different inpatient facility and is basically kicked out because she's not following the guidelines. She's sent back home where she lives with her dad and her stepmother and her stepsister. And uh, you never see the dad. He's never around. I think she does have a very caring stepmother and a very caring stepsister, but obviously they're incredibly concerned for her. Ellen shows signs of she will sit there and eat, but not actually eat, just go through the motions of eating. These are things I just no noticed to the point where they finally do end up putting her in, or asking and getting her to agree to go to this new facility. But what I, what I was wondering here is just thinking about Ellen at the beginning of this movie is, so we know like kind of what anorexia is, but where, where does one start with anorexia and how do we end up in the position where your family, like at the beginning of the movie is worrying about you to the point where we got to get you into an inpatient facility? Sure. So, you know, it, it starts with some of the just restricting behaviors. You know, you might see people start to count calories, which is something that Ellen does throughout the show. She, you know, she's gotten so good at that, that she knows the calorie count of the drip that they give you when you're when you're not eating. She knows the calorie count of all sorts of food. She can look at a plate and know the calorie count. So that sort of behavior is a, a, what we would think of as a warning sign. You know, if there's some some obsessive quality to the sort of thought process of someone who's restricting their meals or exercising obsessively. There's these obsessive tendencies, right? You know, certainly those are going to be some initial hallmarks. Anytime we talk about, you know, anorexia, there's also, we have to mention other most common eating disorder, which is bulimia or bulimia nervosa, which is more uh, associated with the binge eating and purging behaviors. So what is... Yeah. I mean, if you just like real quickly, sure, because I know those can be two different things, but like, how does that separate from anorexia? I know binge eating obviously sounds like eating a lot. Yes. So the most important distinction is that there's no weight loss criteria for bulimia nervosa. So and and I, there, there are clearly some um, patients suffering from bulimia in the treatment center where Ellen goes to, where patient might be severely overweight, but is binge eating and then most likely purging, which is the sort of hallmark of bulimia. What's important is that people with anorexia can also binge eat and purge, but that it's more associated with reducing weight or being or sort of the refusal or disinterest in gaining weight. Oh, wow. I didn't know that in order to be classified anorexic, you actually have to be like pursuing actual weight loss correct there's this uh either either pursuing or trying to maintain this sort of what we typically think of as unhealthy weight yeah okay yep so and it's actually the the that difference that i just pointed out in situations where someone could meet criteria for both or for either we think of anorexia as sort of trumping bulimia in that sense that if they can meet criteria for both we would typically diagnose the person with anorexia because there's sort of typically enough evidence there that weight control is at least part of the sort of disordered thinking. Okay. And, and not to sidetrack us too much, but That's would okay. you say also because is like anorexia, would you consider that like more of a dangerous form of the kind of like mental situation going on here? Yes, for sure. You know, when you see, you know, unfortunately these disorders are deadly. 
but unlike bulimia, in which case you don't have to have the weight loss criteria, anorexia is far more deadly because people are, can get to such an unhealthy weight that they are, in the worst cases, uh, incapable of, of moving. You know, they sort of lose so much muscle mass that they're confined to wheelchairs and things like that. So, so yeah, it, it can get really bad. And that's mm. why we want to sort of hedge on the more risk side of things to make sure a patient gets the treatment that they need. As far as Ellen's family, they're going to put her into the inpatient facility. What are what are they seeing? Why why is this such a huge thing that they have now noticed Ellen has to be like extreme measures has to be taken? Like what is what is a family seeing from their perspective, I guess? Yeah, so, you know, and you mentioned the stepmother and she does care for Ellen. We we that's that's clear, but she takes some pretty extreme approaches to showing that she cares when Ellen first comes home from that um, sort of hospital inpatient place, you know, so she wants to weigh Ellen as, as she says, as, as part of the deal. She also takes pictures of Ellen and shows the pictures to her. And and she actually says to Ellen, do you think that's beautiful? See, I thought that was like a doctor had told her to do that situation. I mean, it's not clear if it is. I would be surprised if that particular intervention was suggested. I can see that. Like now I'm thinking, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, because, yeah. and also because the stepmother says it from her perspective, you know, I can't do this again. So she's very focused on her own experience of Ellen's illness yeah. and, and the frustration that it causes her. So it was hard for me to watch that because Family dynamics obviously play such a big part in in Ellen's recovery, but in general as well, parents in particular, but, you know, family at large, this is also applies to them. They play such a huge role in how someone like Ellen or anyone struggling with these types of issues, how they see themselves and how they see their behavior. And if it's about the family member, you know, saying like, I can't do this again, or I worry so much about you, then it's just, it doesn't do anything for the patient's motivation for them to change because it's not about them. It's about their stepmother, you know, and you compare that to the half sister, Kelly, who very clearly not only cares about Ellen, but also you know, the sort of relationship is much more about, I don't want you to die. I don't I want, want you. To you. Die, yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's a much more supportive sort of interaction and relationship that she has with her sister. And that sort of relationship is much more to be much more likely to be motivating for Ellen. Now, now before we get into the interactions that she has at the rehabilitation center or program, I, I was wondering about people's relationships with food. Uh, and family and kind of wondering, and, and I'm, I'm sure we could, that could be a 10 hour episode about all the different places where food issues come from. But do you see like where Ellen's food issues originate from? Is there a common theme across people that maybe you've worked with where food issues come from? What are food issues? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in the movie, it's not explicitly pointed out the origins of Ellen's anorexia and and sort of disordered eating behaviors and her relationship with food, but it's implied towards the end, and which we'll talk about more as we kind of go through the uh, the story of Ellen's recovery. 
that her relationship with her mother, her birth mother, and her relationship with her family at large played a really big role in, you know, presumably not just her eating disorder, but also, you know, to a certain extent, depression. Yeah, you know, definitely. Other, other things that are probably going on for Ellen and why she is so uninterested, really, in making changes for herself. So, yeah, so to, to that extent, you know, you asked before sort of what the family was likely seeing in terms of her relationship to food. And, you know, excessive exercise is also a part of this because, you know, this is, again, an attempt to control body weight and attempt to control how you look. Attempt right. to control, you know, how big your arm muscles are. So we look at it and, and we, we know, as we described Ellen's family dynamic, that it was chaotic, to say the least. So a lot of times when kids are experiencing this, whether it be divorce or, you know, in Ellen's case, uh, her mother identifying as a lesbian, sort of discovering her, her sexuality and the, the changes that, that led to as her family, Ellen's family dynamic was out of control. Right. Yeah. Her parents separated, I think, when she was young. Yeah. Um, like you said, her mom identified her sexuality and then they live very they don't live near each other at all. Then she's kind of going back and forth between them as she grows up like she's in control of nothing. Right. Basically. So, so this is where the relationship with food comes in, is that especially for adolescents, they are looking for things that they can control. And a lot of times it is sort of their body. You know, I can control how I look. I can control how much food I eat. I can control how much I exercise. I can't control my mom or my dad or my stepmom or my mom's girlfriend, but I can control this. So this is where all my attention and all of my sort of motivation now goes into is controlling this because this makes me feel good, even if other people think it's unhealthy. Definitely. And so as the as we kind of move on, and, and I think you definitely wanted to talk about what, what's going to happen next. So the, the family gets very concerned. Uh, you know, she's she's losing weight, not eating. She's been kicked out of these places and they kind of find this last ditch effort. It's this cutting edge place that people are getting treated the way they're not getting treated elsewhere. And apparently it's working for people where other treatments aren't working and this is where she's introduced to Dr. Beckham, played by Keanu Reeves. And that's where I thought you could kind of talk about Dr. Beckham and his view on treatment and his sort of bluntness and the way he goes about that and just kind of what you think his approach is like. Yeah, so this is fascinating for me because, you know, over the course of watching this movie, Dr. Beckham really goes back and forth between being like, Oh man, what a great therapist interaction that was. Yep. And, and yep, then like, yep. <laughs> oh no, what a terrible therapist interaction yep. that was. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. So that was that was my I was like I would love him. Oh, I yeah. hate him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was my broad experience with Dr. Beckham, but just to go through the specific treatment. So, it's 6 weeks inpatient, which is actually not that long. It's long, but it's not, you know, I mean there are, you know, you'll see inpatient programs sometimes in these situations that go on for months and months. So, it's actually not that long, and that's probably because it's expensive. We are in L.A. That's right. So it's a sort of private house, very nice house set up, no doors, so as to sort of discourage uh, negative behaviors. They don't talk about food, which I found interesting, and from what I've read, um, I should clarify also while we're talking about this, 
I'm certainly not an expert in eating disorder treatment. I have worked with people who have eating disorder behaviors, but I've never worked in, you know, an eating disorder clinic, certainly nothing like uh, Dr. Beckham's place. So saying that up front, and from what I've read, you know, the sort of no talking about food is sort of a, let's say, unique approach that that wouldn't necessarily be the case um, in other more structured programs. So six weeks of inpatient, they do some family therapy. There are sort of like, it's almost like a dorm setup where like three people to a room. Uh, The only male patient, Luke, has his own room. And they're, they're, you know, it's a small community. They have group therapy, what looks like occasional uh, one-on-one therapy with Dr. Beckham. And that's basically the treatment. You know, they have regular weigh-ins and things like that. um, But they're allowed to eat whatever they want, which also is a unique approach. From, again, right. from and what I've read. They're also allowed to not eat. Mm-hmm. They just have to sit at the dinner table. That's right. And they also do like a point system where as they, I guess, basically gaining weight or following whatever path they're supposed to be on, they earn more points and then they get more privileges like going out and that kind of thing. I mean, does that all sound like normal? Does that sound like a real life situation? So, yes, it's actually interesting because it reminds me of, so I did work in the addiction field, so there are some parallels here, and that is that these sort of private or the privatization of treatment of things like addiction and and eating disorders that has happened where, you know, doctors or psychiatrists, or in this case, you know, someone like Dr. Beckham can form his own treatment center and have whatever rules he wants. And, And to be clear, I do see the logic behind some of them. You know, you want to take the focus away from food and and put it on healthy living and you want to put it right. on self-care and, and all that stuff rather right. than the sort of unhealthy, obsessive nature about what you're eating and what you shouldn't be eating. And while we're talking about this, we should also clarify that the writer or the person whose story, this is actually apparently based on her own experience. And the, the woman's name is Marty Noxon, N-O-X-O-N. And apparently is is based on her own experiences. So we want to clarify that, you know, this is not at least at least probably not 100 percent a work of fiction. This is based on someone's personal experience in dealing with their eating disorder and the treatment process that they went through. So So that being said, this is this has a lot of this stuff is based absolutely in reality. I mean, I guess it's not hard to believe. Uh, And I didn't know that. But but that just makes a lot of this hit a lot harder, I suppose. Uh, some of the certain things that happened, but there's a couple things that popped into my head when I was watching it was one, Dr. Beckham has set up this house without the doors, like you just said. And to me, it seemed like he had set up this basically like extended intensive group therapy situation, unsupervised almost. Yeah. Well, there's the sort of house manager who who seems very nice and very pleasant. We don't know what her qualifications are to do this job there is right and then there's a person that seems to be like a group therapist that's there with them we can assume every day at least during the the work week but yeah it's it's pretty unstructured it's it's more of a what we in the addiction field will refer to as like a halfway house or transitional living it represents a little bit more of that than it does like a strict highly structured inpatient program yeah it, it just seemed kind of like he put these people in the situation where he was like He's having them help each other. Mm-hmm. And as a as a viewer, I thought, oh, well, that's really neat. <laughs> uh, you know, I could see where that would work, but I could also see where that could fail. And thinking in that direction, I'd like to talk about Luke a little bit. Sure. 
as far as success and failures. Uh, so we do see Luke. She meets Luke, I think, as the first uh, other patient that she meets when she arrives. He's the only male patient. He's not from the United States. And he he's a, really silly. He's outgoing. He's a, he's a ballet dancer, quite a charming person. And him and Ellen get to know each other very well to the point where they actually start up a, a, a small romance. And I, I was just kind of wondering what you thought of this happening in this situation with these two people. Both of them are going through intensive treatment. Now Luke's far ahead of where Ellen is in the treatment. He's eating, he's gaining weight uh, quite a bit. Like he's, he's out at eating at restaurants, crossing restaurants off his list and Ellen is at this point where she's losing weight and, and almost getting kicked out at different points during the, the movie. But they for, they start forming this relationship. I, I'm just wondering, when you're watching this, is that okay for this to be happening in this situation? Is this something that would be normal to happen in real life? or or I mean, you did say it's based on a true story, so I'm just wondering what you think about that. Yeah, so this is the saddest part of the movie for me, the fact that these two people end up in a relationship that is just the worst it's hard for me to say the worst it's it's one of the worst things that can happen for someone in early treatment and early recovery is to enter into a relationship that they are let's face it not ready for right you know and as i said before i did work in an addiction and inpatient and it absolutely is something that happens People are in, you know, this sort of shared experience situation. There's bonding. There's bonding. There's opportunities to get to know each other very well, very closely. And and much like in the situation with Ellen and Luke, you know, there's opportunities for intimacy. And that sometimes turns into more intimacy. Yeah. And it's, and, and I'll be honest here, for, for people... When I when I worked in inpatient, if you entered into a relationship with another patient, you were discharged. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, that's the end of treatment for you. Now, it, it was not for Alan and Luke. Um, we don't know if that's because their relationship was never discovered. No, no, no. They're they're pretty open about it. Like they sit together, and but it's not clear if if the doctor or the house manager know that they've. Hooked up, I guess, if that's what we want to call it. That's true. I guess that is all in front of just the other people in the house. Right. Huh. So we don't know. Um, I I would be surprised if uh, Dr. Beckham knew about the extent of their relationship, if he would allow both of them to continue to be residents, but we can't know that. I guess I had big opinions about this one, and that was just... Luke is the only guy here, Yep. and... And for the record, I'm glad that they had a guy at least portrayed in the movie, because... This is something that's becoming more and more recognized is the the prevalence of males to be diagnosed and to, to fit the diagnostic criteria for anorexia and eating disorders at large. So I'm glad that there was a male character, but he as a character, you know, and that the charming like. Well, yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say is that yeah. he's so here's here's what he kind of got me thinking. And yeah. And like we said, this movie was was intense and. I mean, just threw me in every direction, but he specifically did because he's the only guy in there. And because he is charming and he is a good looking guy and he does have that like British accent, he's got everything going for him, including success in the program. He's the only guy there. He basically 
can flirt with any of them. And, and I'm not saying he's a manipulator. I'm not saying that's how he's supposed to be betrayed. But I'm saying if this were real life, that person could easily manipulate. They could have the opportunity to manipulate if they wanted to a lot of women in this in this area. If they're the only guy there, I, I think. And yes. I just think that's not I think that's not OK. I 100 percent agree with you. And he does take advantage of his position, both being the sort of most experienced, the person having the most success within the treatment. Yeah. You know, he flirts with all the women. <laughs> so. So, yeah, wh- whether it's sort of a conscious manipulation or not is not not really relevant as far as I'm concerned, because he does take advantage of his position. You know, he yeah. does take advantage of Ellen, who's, who's at, very vulnerable. Right. And it's clearly shown at one point that not only is she not ready, that she really doesn't want right. what he's trying to oh, offer. Not at all. She rejects him initially pretty strongly, actually. And then he kind of gets all defensive and sad. And yeah, it's it's and th- and all of that is reason for me, which is why these rules exist, which is that. And, and you know, I'll say even going back to addiction, there is a general I'll say recommendation that if you're not in a relationship when you go into recovery, that you should not pursue any intimate relationship for a year. Why is that? I mean, just as a like a rule, why would that be just for this exact reason is that you are in a vulnerable position as a person in recovery and you need to focus on your own needs and your own goals. Now, an intimate relationship, a healthy intimate relationship can be a great form of support. Yeah. But for people in early recovery, it's so difficult to to have a healthy intimate relationship because there's there's all these sort of competing needs. There's these competing desires. So that's why there's this general rule. If you go into NA, if you go into AA, you know, and you ask your sponsor, you know, should I go into a relationship? I would say 99% of the time they will say no. Keep the focus on yourself for at least a year. Yeah. I mean, there's even that scene when, so Luke being, he's a dancer yep. and he's injured his knee and he's kind of waiting to find out if his knee's going to heal and he's going to be able to go back and dance and pursue his dream. Apparently he was a pretty good dancer and he finds out basically that his knee's shot and he's not going to be a dancer and he meets Ellen on the stairs and she comes down and they had broken up or whatever at this point, but she sees him and she, she clearly is like, Oh no, I can't believe this happened. And he says something to the effect of like, now my dream is gone and you're my only, and now you're my only plan. Yep. And I was like, come on. Well, that's right. And that's super unhealthy for both of them, obviously. But, and that's, and that's why, I mean, we, we've been focusing on Ellen, but that relationship was a bad thing for Luke too. He did not need to be in a relationship at that moment. Yeah, I mean, he's within that year as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so just to keep moving forward. So Ellen is, gosh, you know, she's she's going through all this, and she does have kind of an upswing inspired a little bit. I mean, there's some good feelings that she does get inspired through the relationship with Luke, but also the relationship she has in the house mm-hmm. and some of just her own discoveries that she has. A couple of things I wanted to talk about and because one of them I did not want to rush by was she at some point had turned to Tumblr and was an artist on Tumblr. She, she puts these art, these drawings on Tumblr, I, I think depicting anorexia and kind of glamorizing it. 
Now, something does end up happening. One of her fans commits suicide. A tragic thing happens where the parents send her the pictures of the of their child's suicide, which is just just insane. But but I guess the weird thing that I was wondering is, I th- I think that it's common, not even common, but people do seem to gravitate towards this specific disorder. Like this would be a a true to life thing. Someone could make a Tumblr. And it would be dedicated towards like an unreal body image and other people would find this something that they wanted to be like. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, there there is there's a whole hashtag for it. It's it's a it's super common across Tumblr and Instagram. It's it's thinspo or thinspiration. And and to go a little bit meta on this, you know, one of the criticisms of To the Bone is that it portrays a lot of really unhealthy manipulative behaviors that people with anorexia sort of use to get around treatment to not, in other words, to maintain their unhealthy weight or to continue their unhealthy uh, exercise patterns. So, so people in general appropriately are concerned about, you know, people seeing these things depicted and then being um, sort of motivated or interested in replicating you know, some of those results. So it's absolutely a real life thing. I mean, I believe it. And I guess it's, you know, I mean, everything's <laughs> out there, but I guess I was just kind of hoping that you were going to say that this one wasn't a real, a real no, one. It, it, no, it's, it's sad, but true. And, and I think, you know, some of the social media platforms are trying to crack down on this because there is a recognition that it's pretty unhealthy and it can lead to things like self-harm and suicide. So, you know, some of these hashtags have, been tried to sort of weed it weed it out but you know that's it's absolutely exists and for all the reasons that you said so we you know what we can do in going back to the family is you know when you have concerns about your child's behavior what they do online is going to be the most in some cases the strongest representation of where their mental health is at so it's something that you know sometimes you have to search for but there absolutely can be evidence of sort of how they're doing based on how they use the internet. Okay, so Ellen is like I said, she's she was doing a little better, and then you know, kind of that stuff that we were just talking about comes popping back up, and uh, the thing with Luke comes crashing down, and then she has a major crash, and she basically hits rock bottom, and she gets she gets kicked out, right, or does she leave? She leaves. That's right. That's right. So she she leaves, runs away. She gets threatened with getting kicked out because she's. She's losing weight too. She's she's basically on the dangerous side of things, and she leaves to the point where Doctor Beckham Keanu Reeves even says her rock bottom is a dangerous rock bottom. Like that, we have to find her. You know, I, I have the quote actually. Oh, you do? I do. Doctor Beckham, while speaking with, I want to say her stepmom, or she's speaking to somebody, and now at this point in the movie, Ellen is going by Eli. So Doctor Beckham says. The problem with treatment for some of these kids is that we won't let them hit bottom. It's too hard to watch. But for Eli, the bottom is critical. And what Dr. Beckham is referring to when he says the bottom is that Eli, Ellen, kind of has to get to the point where she's as bad as she could possibly get without dying. And that's a really, you know, sad and scary um, thing to, to acknowledge that's possible. But... As we see, 
It's essentially what happens. Yeah. So I took that like the completely wrong way. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like I was saying that I thought he meant we can't let Ellen hit rock bottom. It's too dangerous for her to get that far. Well, he's he's actually saying that she needs to if yeah, she's yeah. going to improve. Yeah, I see that now. Yeah. Yeah, and now this is a controversial thing within the treatment realm. So the idea of of needing to hit rock bottom, whether you need to or not, um, and at the risk of self-promotion, I've actually written a, an article about it. You can find it on Medium. The article is called How to Break Bad Habits by Simulating Rock Bottom. And it's this idea that because I actually had a problem with Dr. Beckham's statement and that I don't actually believe that we need to let these people like Ellen hit rock bottom. I believe there are ways to help them simulate and, and connect with the very real danger of what their bottom could be or would be if their behaviors continue. Maybe I haven't been to rock bottom. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope I never get there. So because Ellen gets to rock bottom, Mm -hmm. she actually, so she leaves the place she faints in a subway uh, when she's trying to get on a bus, I think, and it winds back up at her step-parents' house, or she gets on a plane and goes back to her uh, biological mom's house, which is yes. in Arizona, Phoenix, and yep. uh, her, which her two mothers there, her other stepmother, and then I think one of the most, I can't even describe it, like touching slash horrifying slash heart-wrenching things I've ever seen. I mean, she's basically on the verge of, I mean, she's got nothing, no energy, nothing. And her mom, who's actually, and there's a bunch of history there. She's bipolar. She's got a lot of issues as well, big issues. But it, she loves her, right? Just like the same with the stepmom. They both do love her in the end. It doesn't matter. She comes in, she's sleeping out in a tent. And the a mom yurt. Come, a yurt. It's a yurt. <laughs> How do you spell that? <laughs> With a U or an E? Yeah, a, a Y-U-R-T. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so we got a, a, a yurt. So she's sleeping out in the yurt and... <laughs> okay, I like that one. She's sleeping in the yurt and the mom comes out and, I mean, you just see it. And, and once again, as a parent, it just hits you. She sees her baby dying in front of her. Yep. And... Her baby won't eat. And what what would you do if you had a three-month-old who wouldn't eat? Well, you're going to hold them in your arms and put a bottle in their mouth. And that's literally what she does and, and then sings the Mockingbird song to her. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of questions there. I just, I just was wondering what you, th- what you thought about that scene. So, yeah, it, it is a very intense scene. And, and for me, as a therapist, I was sort of conflicted. You know, and obviously we, we don't know if the, how much this is representative of the sort of writer's actual experience or not. Right. But I guess whether it is or not, this is depicting the sort of attempt for both of them to heal or reconnect the relationship that they, I think the mom sort of acknowledges that they really never had, that they never had this sort of right. healthy, appropriate connection. So Ellen, Eli at this point, initially resists but then accepts the uh, rice milk from the bottle that her mom gives her as if she was a baby. And it's this sort of um, very tearful moment where they're both able to connect with one another. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. And, and, you know, from a a psychodynamic uh, perspective, there's a lot of, 
stuff going on here, you know? Yeah, it's just like, is it, if this isn't like something that happened in real life, is this like a responsible thing to put into a screenplay, you know? Well, so it's interesting. And and I think the mom sort of acknowledges that the, this was recommended to her from like a... a holistic doctor. Yeah, exactly. A holistic <laughs> doctor. Thank you. So from that perspective, there's some acknowledgement that I mean, this, they are in a yurt, Ryan. Right, well, I know. So, but right. But there's an acknowledgement that this intervention is not something that would necessarily be suggested by your run-of-the-mill therapist, your run-of-the-mill family therapist. You know, your therapist is not most likely is not going to tell you to go home and, and feed your 20-year-old daughter from a bottle some rice milk. But that's not to say that it doesn't offer an opportunity for connection. So, you know, who are we to judge if it's successful? There's a lot of different forms of treatment that people um, can explore. And if something yeah. is is useful, who are we to judge, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I thought part of it was beautiful, but it was also, you know, tragic and sad and everything. But yeah, a couple of last things I wanted to hit and... I think one of them is the overarching theme that we keep seeming to hit time after time as we go through the series that, you know, of our show. And that's this miraculous ending. Yep. The, she, so later that night she passes out in the desert and then she wakes up the next day with a rejuvenated spirits, a rejuvenated spirit and goes home and hugs her family and then walks back into the rehabilitation center and the movie ends with a big smile on her face. And this is in five minutes. Yep. And that's it. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, that's not it. You know what I mean? Like that's that once again, what happens after it's, it's going to be, I, I didn't see this as anywhere near a, like a happy ending. I didn't think it had to be. I'm just saying they tried to portray it that way. It seemed a little miraculous to me. Yeah, so it's a it's a very hopeful ending, and it's like a nice bow tie on the top of this plot story, right? And 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 from that perspective, I mean, my my wish as a therapist is always that there's like a a one year later clip, you know, after the nice bow tie, where we can see, okay, yes, the person is making progress, but here's also that they're still struggling, and it's okay that they're still struggling. We don't have to have a perfect little bow tie on every single one of these stories. We can be happy for Eli that she's back in treatment. That's great. But we also have to remember that this is the beginning of her recovery process. This is not the end. And and so just kind of finally, I, I'm wondering just for, for those with eating disorders and families with eating disorders, what does recovery look like? Like what's the realistic, what's a realistic recovery look like for a real family? Yeah, so I, I obviously want to emphasize that recovery and, and full recovery is absolutely possible. So in that sense, there is always a reason to be hopeful. But that being said, it is a long recovery because we're sort of acknowledged throughout this that your relationship with food is something that you develop essentially from birth. So that is not something that's going to be completely undone in six weeks of inpatient. It's going to take hard work, potentially more family therapy for someone like Eli and the family dynamic that she's coming from. It's going to take a, a really something that we didn't get to see, but is important for Eli down the road is like a really different structure, you know, whether that be going back to school or having a job, you know, the more structure that she has and that she can establish for herself, the much more likely she is going to be successful. 
But all these steps are going to be important of her recovery process and being able to build, you know, what what would hopefully look like a quote unquote normal looking life. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's not just possible, like it's out there for, for everyone to get. And it, I mean, you just got to start taking the steps. So, all right, we have to stop and take a quick break and then we're going to be right back. You're listening to Pop Psych 101, a show discussing mental health and popular culture through two perspectives, a patient and a therapist. We explore the accuracies of how mental illness is portrayed in movies, books, and television, for better or worse. All right, and we are back. All right, Ryan, we are going to do a couple listener questions today. There were some questions that people had about eating disorders on the Facebook group, which is if you guys want to join our Facebook group where people give each other support about mental health, but they also just talk about mental health things and they ask questions of the show. Uh, it's just a general support group um, and chat group. It's uh, You can go to Facebook and search Pop Psych 101 Mental Health Chat, and you can find us there. Uh, it is a private enclosed group, so you have to ask to join. But go ahead and do that if you're wanting to join with us. But Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and jump straight into this and ask a couple of these listener questions. I think they're going to be uh, pretty important from these people that asked today. And the first question that I have, uh, and these are all going to be anonymous today. And the first question is, I used to have a fear of eating in front of other people is this some kind of disorder so uh on its own no absolutely not you know we could qualify that as sort of like a light anxiety symptom you know some self-consciousness just speculating but if there have been sort of embarrassing food events in a person's life they might develop this sort of self-consciousness it might help ryan they they did go on to say i would literally not eat and starve myself until no one but my mom was around yeah so in in that case, I mean, again, it's not necessarily a disorder. It's something that, you know, if it were coupled with, let's say, other depressive or anxiety symptoms or other disordered eating behaviors or symptoms, then absolutely we could look at that and, and you know, talk about ways to kind of overcome this if we just think of it as a fear or, or anxiety discomfort. But that's something, absolutely something that could be treated. Um, a person could absolutely develop a comfort with eating and public or eating in front of other people. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, next question we have today uh, that we're going to be jumping into is uh, again from anonymous. And it says, how do you know that you have a binge eating disorder? I go through spurts of all I want to do is eat. And of course I eat so much, I feel miserable. So basically they're asking what's the difference between overeating and binge eating. So I'm going to list some specific symptoms of binge eating disorder maybe that will help clarify for people. And, you know, and these, you know, I would say most diagnoses um, typically occur over sort of large periods of time, anything from one month to six months. So if someone has a really, uh, let's say, binge eating weekend or like, you know, I, it's the holiday season. If somebody eats a lot over a course of a week, we don't necessarily look at that as binge eating disorder. But again, so here are some classic symptoms of binge eating disorder. Eating unusually large amounts of food in a specific amount of time, such as over a two-hour period. Feeling that your eating behavior is out of control, so indicating some awareness. Um, eating even when you're full or not hungry is a big one. So, because usually though what that means is sort of eating in response to some emotional trigger, which is a, a sort of hallmark sign. 
frequently eating alone or in secret. So that sort of addresses yeah. the, the sort of uh, issue that the previous questioner had, but that might be one symptom sort of within what would be considered other behaviors that would indicate a disorder. That's uh, that's one of, that's one of the things that I do. That's okay. like um, if uh, after my wife goes to bed or like alone in your car or something, yeah, like uh, get something from the fast food and sit in your car or something like that, yeah. Yeah, and then to also echo something you, you talked about up front, which is the sort of feeling depressed, disgusted, ashamed, guilty, um, or upset about your eating. So this sort of right. shame-guilt cycle with the eating behavior um, is also a hallmark of, of right. this disorder. And then the sort of final piece is sort of frequently dieting sort of to compensate. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and possibly without weight loss, or there could be weight loss. So the, the sort of yo-yo effect that people will have. This is what, like, I've told, like, my psychiatrists and doctors, the people that have diagnosed me. This is, like, from a perspective of someone who has been diagnosed binge eater, being binge eater, uh, like, what I'll say. And I just kind of want to see if this lines up with those things. <laughs> yeah, sure. But, but but basically how I'll say it is, um, it feels like uncontrollable, uh, like this nag uh, that starts at the beginning of your day and it lasts till you go to sleep. You, the only thing you can think about is the fact that you are going to start eating and it's all about putting that off. Like you just constantly are trying to stop it from happening. But as soon as the dam breaks, it's over. Yep. It's like a second the dam breaks, it's done. And it's not just like, okay. And then you have a big meal. It's like you, you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you just eat so much, you eat so much to the point, and then it's like, it's just, it's insanity, and then all of a sudden it just shuts off, and you're done, and then a second you're done, you, like, you're just, I, I can't even explain it, like, all that, whatever it is that you're feeling, whatever the good feelings that you're getting from eating all that stuff, is just, I mean, this is the complete reverse in one second, you know? Uh, yeah. like you said, disappointment and guilt and shame. But the main thing about it is you feel like you have absolutely no control over it. Like, like I said, it's this horrible fight to stop yourself. And it's like this battle you cannot win, which is why I haven't eventually got put on or am and currently on literal medication to, to, to help my brain control its appetite so that like I can stop thinking about it. So I just, yeah, I think like the uncontrollable part is probably like the worst part. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and this is when, as is mentioned into the bone, that this sort of does resemble addictive behavior, addictive problems, because it's sort of that that impulse is not fully uh, uh, satisfied until the sort of extreme uh, behavior has been followed through on. Yeah, no, I actually, that was a question I had that I didn't get to ask up front because we had an hour conversation, but yeah. Um, definitely. Yep. So I think we have one more listener question for the day. And another anonymous listener asks, why are eating disorders so much more prevalent in women than men? Is it genetic? So it's a tough question to answer because... I don't think it's true. Well, right. So that's why it's a tough question to answer is because there is a pretty large assumption that the perceived disparity between women and men 
is is perceived because of the lack of reporting on the men's side. Right. That men are are less likely to seek treatment and to get treatment for eating disordered uh, behavior or eating disorders in general. Part of the disparity, I would say, is because of the, you know, sort of societal expectations of, and you can look at like magazines on the rack at your grocery store as a good example of this, like women are encouraged to diet and lose weight and be thin. Men are, I was like, in general, but not necessarily specifically, encouraged to build muscle and bulk up and look strong and all this sorts of stuff. And that doesn't mean that they're not capable of eating disordered behavior, but just these sort of stereotypes often persist in the sort of treatment realm as well. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, and I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it, but, you know, I think some of these perceptions come from the sort of societal expectation of who could have an eating disorder. And I mentioned this up at the top, but I want to emphasize it again, and that's eating disorders do not discriminate. They are common, you know, even and even this movie, you know, it's mostly white women and that are portrayed in the, the treatment center. And what we know is that eating disorders do not discriminate, you know, on uh, gender, sex, um, socioeconomic status, you know, it, it can affect anybody. So I think that's important to, to be aware of. All right. Yeah. You know, Ryan, because in, as soon as I read that question, I, you know, I immediately thought, well, you know, there's no way it, it's just, I think for some reason, just like mental issues in general are viewed as this, I guess, feminine thing, I guess. I don't even know how to put it because I don't want to sound like I'm putting anybody in that category because I don't believe in that. But but for some reason, men have a problem just admitting that they have a problem. Yep. And simply... I don't know. I mean, it even goes down to like guys that won't go to the doctor because they're having a heart attack, you know? Yep, exactly right. It's, 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 yeah, it's bred into some, some men and some families. But, you know, I think as time goes, it gets better. Or getting better. It does get better. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, Ryan. I think that's all we got time for for listener questions today, but. We do have our ratings to do if you have not listened to the show before. Ryan and I do a one to five rating. Ryan does one to five somethings on the scale of accuracy to real life of the pop culture that we did that day. And I do one to five on the awesomeness of the movie. And Ryan, what is your rating today? So I wanted to, you know, I was tempted to do goo goo bars, but I don't want to. I would have been let down if it was goo goo bars. I know. So, so you know what? Please say it's bottles of rice milk. No, no, no. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do you one better. It's out of five Doctor Neos because uh, no, I, it should be. Uh, I couldn't stop thinking about Keanu Reeves as a therapist. Okay, I got you. I was hoping it was gonna be the the tent thing. Oh, okay. You know what? That's better. Let's 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 restart this and say, well, Mike, today. <laughs> I'm not gonna cut this out. That's fine. Out of I'm gonna do out of five yurts because okay, out of five what, yurts with a U. What a fascinating architectural structure mm-hmm. that was. So, you know, as we said up top, this movie is one of the heaviest sort of treatment portrayals that we've covered so far. So I thought in my review of it, it's important to sort of recognize that this is a uh, unique treatment setting. This is a unique treatment approach. But that being said, it is not a unrealistic treatment approach, an unrealistic treatment setting. Right. So to that extent, 
The only problem that I really have with this is the sort of desert hallucination miracle that happens for Eli at the end of the movie and the clean uh, bow on top at the end. You don't so, have a problem when the therapist told her to get over it? So, so I have a problem with it. I'm not it. trying to change your no, no, no. mind. No, I, it's okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to answer your question. I, I do have a problem with it, but my ratings are supposed to be about the accuracy. You're right. You're right. Okay. So there are <laughs> therapists like Dr. Beckham who would absolutely treat their patients like this. So it's important to know that there are therapists like this that exist. That doesn't mean I approve or, or, or that I even remotely treat my patients like Dr. Beckham does. But that being said, this is a realistic portrayal of how some therapists work. Okay. That, doesn't, that doesn't mean it's okay. But that being said, this is pretty accurate. So I went four out of five yurts, Mike. That you're going to go five. It's well, the end, though. I get it. The end is too it's the end. pretty bow. We got five minutes. I mean, they had it up until there, though. It was pretty close up until there. And yeah. and I have to say, and, and again, this is realistic, but... The, the relationship stuff really, you know, grinds my gears as a therapist just to see yes, the things that get in the way of treatment. So, of recovery, um, yeah. yeah. It, I do want to say, too, though, that, that with the parallels we've seen and read about as 13 Reasons Why, and just a quick note, I did not think this was nearly as irresponsible, like, or even at all. I thought this was, like, even some of the more drastic things they show, they show the character Megan losing their her baby and everything. I thought they showed that in a very light and subtle way, and that's a very realistic possibility that you could have if you have if you don't go through recovery and you get pregnant. So I'm just saying these are. I thought it was a responsibly and well done movie, personally. Yeah. So and 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 I agree. And I just hope that when movies try to address these mental health issues, that they address the sort of long term aspect of recovery. So all I'm asking for. And and this is look this is going to be a theme. And I'm I'm not denying that this is going to be annoying for our readers to hear me harp on over and over and over again. But you listeners, know, our listeners and readers, you know, for he's people, a writer too. Well, well Mike, <laughs> we have people that read our show essentially on YouTube. I don't want to <laughs> leave them out. I I just want the portrayal to accurately reflect the length of time in which it takes it takes people to recover. So that's all I'm asking for. And and in that degree, you know, I want people when they watch these things that oh all i had to do is go to a six weeks of inpatient and, and then have life my, is fantastic yeah, and then have my desert you know epiphany and everything will be great it almost knocks it down another point when you put it like that well that's why i said four because i like enough of it to keep it as a pretty okay generally positive yeah all right all right okay so okay i'm gonna do my one out of five star i always do stars as far as awesomeness of the movie and i'm gonna go ahead and say this movie was awesome yeah, this is a five awesome, a five star awesome movie. I immediately, my wife didn't watch it with me, and I immediately was like, "You got to watch this movie." I thought it was fantastic. I don't know if it was because I related so much. Um, I related a lot, and I've never been to like any sort of like inpatient for this kind of thing. I've been an inpatient definitely, but not for this or for my eating stuff. But every little thing I saw, I just saw a lot of detail, like the when. She, she was eating her food at the beginning of the movie, but she was going through the motions and not actually putting food in her mouth. I just, I just thought they did a really good job in it. It was well paced and great action or great acting. Great movie, five stars. So, all right, everyone, that's all we got time for today. 
As usual, uh, thank you so much for listening to our show. We, we just couldn't thank you anymore for tuning in as often as you do. And thank you to Kevin McLeod for most of the music that we use on this show every week. You can find him at incompetech.com. And Ryan, thank you for talking to me every week. Well, thank you for sharing, Mike. Okay, so an intense but important discussion about eating disorders through the lens of To the Bone. This movie covered a lot of the aspects that influence symptoms of eating disorders, but there are some things to emphasize as we wrap up today's show. First of all, even though treatment of eating disorders is shown as something that is often difficult and even ineffective at times, it's important to know that recovery is possible. It does take hard work on the part of the patient and often even the family, but with a strong support system and willingness to change, the right treatment can make all the difference. One thing Ellen's family does do well is that they do not give up on her just because some treatment hasn't been effective. They seek out second opinions and alternative treatment in the hope of finding something that works for their loved one. Secondly, if you or someone you love is showing signs of disordered eating, do not overlook it. It can be easy to minimize or overlook disordered eating habits because eating is such a normal part of our everyday lives, but these habits can often be a sign of something much worse going on. So seeking out an evaluation or treatment sooner is always better than later. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you as always to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and YouTube at PopPsych101. We are specifically on YouTube for our fans who may be hard of hearing. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Poppsych101 is not only a podcast, but also a radio show. You can find us on the real-life radio station on Dash Radio. If Dash Radio is not installed on your vehicle, you can also download their app on Android or iOS. For the podcast, we are on all major distribution channels, so please rate, review, and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.